0: My name is Jason Poling. I'm the pastor emeritus here at New Hope. Uh, A a very good morning to you. It's good to be here uh, preaching to some people this time. Last time I was here was Father's Day and it it seemed that uh, many people were celebrating Father's Day by sleeping in. Uh, So thanks for showing up. I want to just follow up something uh, to what uh, Jen said about Frederick Road Fridays. Uh, I was there Friday night as the uh, only person there uh, there's there's some, it's kind of somewhere on the continuum between pathetic and creepy when you have like the fat pastor with the collar on chatting up kids all night so it really is a good thing when we can have multiple people there uh so i want to uh, encourage you to hit the sign up genius it, and it's fun it, it thank you um it really is a, a good time um and, uh, and what I'm hearing everybody say is, like, they're, all their kids talk about all week is the, is the prize wheel. These kids need to have more important things going on in their lives than this prize wheel. But as long as they're interested in it, let's, let's keep giving it to them. So, <clears throat> this morning, we have an opportunity to take a look at a passage that is very controversial and has been made so recently by the way that it has been used by government officials. As you may recall, uh, not too long ago, in fact it was uh, on uh, June 14th, so just a month ago, uh, the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, gave a speech regarding the way in which our government is handling matters at our southwestern border. And he responded to some of the concerns that had been raised by Christian organizations about what our government was doing and how. And he said, let me take an aside to discuss concerns raised by our church friends about separating families. Many of the criticisms raised in recent days are not fair or logical, and some are contrary to law. First, illegal entry into the United States is a crime, as it should be. Persons who violate the law of our nation are subject to prosecution. I would cite to you the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order. Well, this got all kinds of people all kinds of upset. And I will say that my initial thought when I heard this uh, was that c- kind of like the, the Far Side cartoon on the cover of your bulletin? Um, you, you know, politicians doing theology doesn't usually work out in ways that impress the theologians. On the other hand, I imagine that politicians roll their eyes when I utter my political opinions. So I guess it's only fair either way. But, but the question, I think, is an important one Is he right? to say what he said. Is he right that in Romans 13, Paul says we have to obey the laws of government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order? And furthermore, that orderly and lawful processes are good in themselves and protect the weak and lawful. Well, let's look at this text. Let's look at this text and evaluate that. Paul says in chapter 13 of Romans, he says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. and Those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in the authority? One in authority? Do what is right, and he'll commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So that's the text. I think there are three things that we need to keep in mind about this text as we think through it. The first is that it does not exist in a textual vacuum. The second, that it does not exist in an historical vacuum. And the third, that it does not exist in a theological vacuum. Paul is writing chapter 13 of Romans, pay attention here, after chapter 12 of Romans, (laughs) right? So it follows the end of chapter 12 and because the chapter divisions are not things that Paul put in himself, they came along later, when we go from chapter 12 verse 21 to chapter 13 verse 1, this is probably one of these places where Paul is simply continuing on with what he was saying. At the end of chapter 12, he's saying, look, don't exact revenge. And in fact, broadly speaking, chapter 12 of Romans, you, know, if you could sum it up as one thing, Paul says, for Christ's sake, behave yourself. Actually, that really is what he's saying. For Christ's sake, for the sake of Christ and his reputation, there are good ways of living and, and you should follow them. And one of them, it gets to the end, is don't he said, not revenge is a dish best served cold, revenge is a dish best served by somebody else, i.e. by God. Don't take vengeance, but let God take care of whatever execution of justice needs to happen. He's saying, you shouldn't be trying to do on your own what is properly the role of government, which, you know, again, classic political theory says that, that the government is the entity that has the legitimate monopoly on the use of force. You have to have some sort of government in order to protect people against those who would do them harm. And so we also need to keep in mind chapter 12 of Romans, again, this may come as a revelation, comes after chapters 1 to 11 of Romans, right? And in in fact, chapter 12 starts off, Therefore, I urge you, And the therefore refers to the first 11 chapters of Romans, where where Paul is saying, to summarize as he says in chapter 11, verse 32, that God has bound all men over to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on all. So Paul, in the course of Romans 1 to 11, is talking about the reality of the human condition. He talks about how specifically that cashes out in terms of how we understand the promises that God has made to his people Israel and the ways that he is seeking to draw the nations into his fold. But, but the, the key thing that Paul's trying to get across is that everybody needs salvation because everybody is on their own in trouble. None is righteous before God. All have sinned and fall, fallen short of his glory. And so we need to be saved. Thanks be to God, we are through Jesus. And so chapter 12 isn't about somehow kind of earning your salvation. It isn't about behaving in a way that God's going to really like you and really uh, welcome you. It's saying, no, in light of the fact that you have been welcomed by God, that he has forgiven you in light of the fact that you have this new life in Christ, here are ways that you get to live now. And chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, precedes what comes immediately after, which is chapter 13 verses 8 through 10, where he, he, Paul says that, that famous line that people misquote uh, or misunderstand to think you can't take a mortgage, which is, let no debt r- remain outstanding except the debt to love one another. What he's saying is, is yes, there are, are rules or commandments that are given, and, and, and a good way to think about how you live those out, how you follow those, is just keep in mind you, you need to be loving One another. In fact, going on in chapter 14, uh, uh, and 15 of Romans, he, he basically says you need to be less concerned with how well your neighbor is behaving and what standards your neighbor is using, and you need to be more gracious to them as they try to work out what it means for them to live in a way that pleases Christ. So when Paul is talking about submission to governing authorities here in chapter 13 of Romans, he didn't sit down and say now i'm going to unfold a theology of civic authority he was in the course of writing a 16 chapter letter and this part of the letter has to do with him talking about how we live out our identity in christ in all kinds of different ways it's not outside the realm of possibility that you can do a little bit of mirror reading so when you hear paul say something like don't take revenge but leave that to God, it could be that there's a problem in Rome where there are folks who are kind of taking revenge against each other. You know, like the sign at SeaWorld that says, don't swim in the shark tank. Probably somebody made it necessary to have that sign up, right? (laughs) And so it could be that there are people who are in Rome who are saying, well, you know, Jesus is king. I mean, Caesar's not, so I don't need to do what Caesar says. No, Paul says, Part of what it means to live well, to live well for Christ, is to do so as a functional citizen. Now, that is a little different for us today than it was for a first century Christian in Rome. Because as I said, this text does not exist in an historical vacuum. Paul is writing this to a community that was not, unlike us, involved in a democratic system of self-government. We, in a sense, as citizens in a democracy, or republic, bear some of the responsibility for governing. We get to choose the people that we elect, and sometimes we get to weigh in on particular laws that we might, uh, might be proposed by, by referendum or, uh, or by initiative or, or repeal proposed by referendum. But here, Paul is writing to a community that was not involved in governance. Like most people throughout human history, they got governed. They didn't get to decide how they would be governed. They simply had to follow the ruling authorities. Now, as it turns out, when Paul's writing this, he's writing this at a period in, in Emperor Nero's reign when Nero was not doing nearly the same bat's not crazy stuff that he was doing later on, which was really, really awful and involved a great deal of suffering and persecution of Christians. At this point, Nero seemed to be kind of like a you know, half-decent... Roman emperor. As long as you didn't get on his bad side, you probably wouldn't expect too much trouble. But Paul is writing this at a time when the people who had to submit to authorities really didn't have much say in the matter. And because that was the reality, and because that had been the reality for so many people for so long, Paul is writing this in a Context where all kinds of people have also weighed in on this. He's not writing this in a theological vacuum. So, not only contemporary Jewish writings, but contemporary philosophers of Paul's had reflected a a great deal on what it means to live in a situation where you don't get to call the shots, where somebody else is, is making decisions about how tax revenues are raised and how they're spent. And on the whole, most of them had come to the same conclusion, which is you do what you got to do to be a citizen, to function. If you make too much trouble, it's probably not going to go well for you. And, as Jesus put it, you render to Caesar what's Caesar's, and you render to God what's God's. And Paul may well have had that in mind at the end uh, of this passage in verse 7. He says, give everybody what you owe them. If you owe taxes... Pay taxes, you owe revenue. He's actually referring there to two different types of taxes that people might have to pay. You owe taxes, you pay your taxes. Stop at stoplights, Paul would say. And it's necessary to do that, and and I think the way the NIV translates it here in verse 5 is kind of clumsy. It says not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Basically he's saying you you, you follow the law, not just because you're afraid of what might happen to you if you don't, but you you follow it because it's just the right thing to do. Society works well when people follow the rules. This is a society where people will stop at stoplights at 4.30 in the morning when nobody else is around and wait for them to change. I like that better than one where people think that stop signs are optional if they have the white border around them. And this actually goes all the way back to Jeremiah in his letter to the exiles in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Unfortunately, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven also a passage that gets taken out of context and abused. Uh, the broader context of what Jeremiah is saying there is he's saying to a people who have been taken out of their land and put in somebody else's territory. They've been taken out of of Jerusalem and out of uh, uh, Judea where they, where they live, which is their home. They've been dragged off to Babylon. They're miserable. And Jeremiah says, look, guys, you're going to be here for a while. God's telling me to tell you, you need to not only kind of make a life here, but really you need to pray for the prosperity of the city where you're at. You need to actually become a functional contributing part of Babylonian society to the degree you can because A, you're going to be here for a while, it's going to go better, but B, you have the opportunity to demonstrate what it looks like to live well as God's people. So do that. And all of this, if we understand this text in its context and in its textual context, historical context, theological context, all that means that what we find here is Paul putting government in its place. Paul is putting government in its place. He's relativizing its importance, to be complicated about it. In other words, he's saying it's important insofar as it's important. And if you don't take it seriously... As seriously as it ought to be taken, that's a problem. If you get obsessed about it, that's also a problem. But he's putting it in its place. This is what Paul does, incidentally, with just about everything else. Paul puts sex in its place. He puts marriage in its place. Money, careers, property, food and drink, religious observance. He even puts Torah in its place. Israel, he puts basically everything other than God in a place of relative importance always under the importance of God himself. He says, look, government's government. You need to have government. So, be a good citizen. What that means then, for us, is that government is not to be ignored mindlessly. We are not to say, well, Jesus is king, so Caesar isn't, so we don't have to obey any of the laws. No, we say, yeah, we're part of the society, so we function as part of the society. But it also means that government is not to be obeyed mindlessly. It does not mean that everything a government commands to be done is right. Let's take a great example of this. Back in the book of Exodus, early on in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh commands that the Hebrew children be killed. And what do the midwives do? The midwives, the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, they save the babies. And when, when Pharaoh says, what, what's going on? They're like, Boy, these, these ladies, they're strong. I mean, they're working all day in the fields and then they give birth. And then by the time we get there, the baby's already gone. At, at no point in the book of Exodus do you get the sense that the author says, and it was really wrong of them to lie to Pharaoh because he was the governing authority. Back in Acts chapter 5, and, and there are a bunch of stories you could, we could tell out of the book of Acts, but Acts chapter 5, we, we have uh, Peter and, and the disciples who are, who are preaching, and they're causing all kinds of uproar and trouble while they're preaching, and then they get arrested. and Basically, the, the uh, Sanhedrin, the governing religious authorities, says, you guys got to cut this out. We're giving you strict orders not to preach about this Jesus. And they're like, look, we got to obey God rather than men. God told us to preach about Jesus. You're telling us not to. He's God, you're not. So we're going to keep preaching about Jesus. And probably the greatest example in our time is the Martin Luther King Jr., The text is familiar, I hope, to all of us. But I'll bring you back to his letter from Birmingham jail. It's in 1963. King had gone to Birmingham to organize people to protest segregation in that city where segregation was practiced about as severely as anywhere in the country. And a group of clergymen, both Christian and Jewish, basically wrote a a letter saying that he should cut it out, that it's really unhelpful that they're working out their stuff in the way they need to work it out, and that the last thing we need to have is outside agitators coming in and causing trouble. King first says, look, I'm not an outside agitator. I'm from Atlanta, I'm right up the road, but we have a group of our Southern Christian Leadership Conference right here in Birmingham. They wanted me to come, so don't be pulling that outside agitator nonsense on me. But, But then he goes on to say, look, in no way do I advocate evading or defying the law as a rabid segregationist would do because at this point you have uh, the, the, re, the integration of schools coming up and, and, se- and segregationists trying to say, no, we're not going to follow the law, not to mention all kinds of, of uh, extrajudicial violence like lynchings. I'm not advocating anything like that, King says, that would lead to anarchy. No, if somebody's going unbra- to break an unjust law, he says, he has to do it openly, lovingly, not hatefully, as segregationists were doing it, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. In fact, I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and willingly accepts the penalty by staying in jail to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing The very highest respect for law i don't have time to go into it he's basing this on on uh, aquinas who said that an unjust law is no law at all so any government that tells you to do something unjust is doing basically is is functionally uh, legislating nonsense because you can't have a real law that is based on injustice and so King's approach and the approach of the nonviolent activists of the civil rights era was, as he put it, direct action, whereby we present our very bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscience of the local and national community. Mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self purification. We began a series of workshops on nonviolence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, Are you able to accept the blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the ordeals of jail? As he says elsewhere, King is doing this in in the context of a broader movement among, uh, among civil rights activists where some were saying, we need to secure justice by any means necessary, including violence. And then at the same time, there are people in the African-American community, he says, some of whom simply had figured out a way to to get along, and some of whom actually were profiting on the situation where you had segregation, where where one group of people was treated unequally. He says, I'm trying to to hew a course where we're rejecting violence and we're rejecting complacency. I'm trying to hew a a course of nonviolent resistance that is undertaken with great care, that is undertaken with great discipline. And he did. It's one of the reasons that we remember him and his movement. We remember him despite his personal flaws as such a great figure in history. Because he led this movement that did say, I am going to lay down literally my own life if I need to. But I'm going to suffer in order to demonstrate the unjustness of these laws. So government is not to be ignored mindlessly, it's also not to be obeyed mindlessly, but for the most part, for most of us, most of the time, unless we are in a situation where there is such a grave injustice that it has to be fought, and we are in a position where we are able to do something about it, where we can affect things, for the most part, government is not, most of the time, where our attention belongs. I read an article this week, an interview with Rich Stearns, this is in the latest issue of Christianity Today, Rich Stearns is just uh, stepping down as the CEO of World Division, one of the largest uh, international relief agencies and evangelical organization. And he says, you know, there have always been people in the White House who sometimes align with Christian values and sometimes don't. And, and every president's job description is to keep America great and put America first. So what I tell le- church leaders is we need to let the government be the government and we need to make sure that the church stays the church. So you let the government do what the government does. And we as the church focus on what we as the church need to do. So what does all this mean for how we evaluate these comments of our Attorney General? Well, I think that we we should look at one more thing that he says. He said in the speech, he said, I have given the idea of immigration much thought, and I've considered the arguments of our church leaders. I do not believe scripture or church history or reason condemns a secular nation state for having reasonable immigration laws. If we have them, then they should be enforced. A mere desire to benefit from entry to the nation just, do, does not justify illegal entry. And there are, of course, adverse consequences to illegal actions. I'm going to say that again. I have given the idea of immigration much thought and have considered the arguments of our church leaders. I do not believe scripture or church history or reason condemns a secular nation state for having reasonable immigration laws. If we have them, then they should be enforced. A mere desire to benefit from entry to the nation does not justify illegal entry, and there are, of course, adverse consequences to illegal action. He's absolutely right. He's absolutely right to say that every nation has to have laws governing all kinds of things, including how you handle your borders. Every nation has to have borders. Every nation has to police those borders. Every nation has to have laws and needs to figure out how they're going to enforce them. But he's absolutely right, I need to say, in principle in terms of how this idea has cashed out in the way our nation's laws have worked out, I'm not so sure that he's right. I was bad at math. I still am. But it was really hard for me when I was growing up because I had to do math every day in school. This was not like one of these where you had A and B days where I could have had like a break every other day from doing math. I had to do math every day. I was bad at it. And when I did my math homework, I would often find myself going off into crazy places. I would, like, I'm supposed to simplify this equation, and it just got more and more complicated. Or I'd come up with these really weird, long numbers. And when that happened, what I knew was, okay, I've I've messed up somewhere along the way. I've gone back. I I have to go back. I have to figure out where I took the wrong step, and I have to get, get that straightened out if a policy cashes out in things like disabled children being ripped away from their parents, somehow we've messed something up. Like, that, whatever the answer is, that's not it. Which is why I have been so frustrated, and I'm gonna speak very personally to this now, by the way that this immigration issue has not only been debated and discussed and argued about, but but by the policies that we have now, because the reason we have so much dysfunction in our immigration system now, one of the reasons is that opportunities to fix it have been missed along the way. And if you look on our, politi- our statement of our political views on our website, you'll see immigration reform is the one issue where New Hope has, has said that we would get involved. We've been involved for probably 15 years now with our partners at World Relief, downtown. I signed on to some of the very earliest letters that were put out where, where uh, evangelical voices were being raised or rallied together to speak out on this issue. And I I have these little pins that they gave out on the different times that I went down to D.C. to lobby congressmen on, on these issues. It's interesting. When the Chamber of Commerce gets involved in supporting a cause, the lunch gets a lot better. But, you know, I, I, I've, I've been part of this for 15 years. And there have been opportunities along the way to fix what's clearly a broken system. And for all kinds of reasons, including some very venal, calculated political ones, people who had the opportunity to make better choices than they did ended up doing what they did, which has put us in the place we're at. I don't know what the solution is. I really don't. I have some ideas. I'm pretty sure that if what we're doing is eventuating in some of the things that are going on, then that means that however well-intentioned people may have been when they work out certain policies, they need to go back and figure out where they went wrong and where we can do something different. I continue to pray and I continue to hope. And one of the things that gives me hope on this is that this is an issue where the church as a whole is speaking with one voice. We're Catholics, Protestants, progressives, evangelicals. This is a place where you can get, I'm not joking, you can get a, an extremely conservative cardinal in the Catholic Church and Al Sharpton and a Southern Baptist leader all saying the same thing, which is that this needs to get fixed. And my, my hope and my prayer is that the witness and the voice of the church can eventually have an impact on the people who actually make policy. Thus endeth my comments on immigration reform. But the bottom line on this passage and on this whole idea of how we relate to government is this, we do the things that we can do And we do them as God would have us do them. And we leave the rest to God. Whether it's vengeance, whether it's ensuring that something work out in a way that we can't affect. We pay attention to the things we're really responsible for. We don't try to take upon ourselves more responsibility or authority than God has given us. And so yes, We submit ourselves to the governing authorities. We obey them unless we can't. And in all things, we try to keep a sense of perspective. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a difficult time for our country. We do have a problem that needs to be solved. And when I hear some of the loudest and most aggressive voices articulating their solutions, I don't think they make a lot of sense. And I'm grateful for the opportunity that I've had to talk with so many people who are compassionate, who are thoughtful, who are not naive, who have tried to steer a way forward for our country in regard to this issue. I pray, Lord, that somehow voices of both reason and love will prevail in this particular debate. But however long this goes on and however ugly it gets, I pray that your church will consistently bear witness to the fact that we are first citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But that insofar as our citizenship with the king, in the kingdoms of earth does not conflict with that, we will be good citizens. That we will obey our lawful government. And that where, in those rare cases where we feel it necessary for us to do otherwise, that we would do that with fear of you, the strong passion to obey your will for our lives. And with the confidence that you have all of the consequences in your hand. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.